My name is Dr. Joanna Pagonis, and welcome to Tackle Tuesday. Tackle Tuesday is a podcast series that tackles different issues in the workplace. We explore topics such as leading with emotion, diversity and inclusion, and how to create resilient and agile work cultures. Today's episode is sponsored by Synogap Solutions. We work closely with emerging leaders to help you develop a clear vision of your authentic self and to discover your passion and how it aligns with your purpose. Once you have a clear understanding of your purpose and vision for your future, you'll be able to discover your path for continuous growth along with the energy and enthusiasm necessary to sustain you during the most challenging moments in your life. We encourage you to visit our website at SinogapSolutions.com and explore the courses we offer that will help you develop the mindset and capabilities to be an inspirational leader. In this week's episode, I interviewed Dr. Robert Barrett and Dr. Louis Francescuti, who are the authors of Hardwired, How Our Instincts to Be Healthy Are Making Us Sick. Dr. Robert Barrett has spent much of his life studying behavior, group dynamics, and organizational culture, and is the recipient of 15 major academic awards for his contributions to the way we perceive and remedy deep conflict. He has traveled to rural Nigeria to interview recruiters and leaders of death squads on how they indoctrinate fighters. He helped build Canada's first ever patient safety officer program for hospitals, was on the committee that introduced the first operation operating room checklist, and he was core faculty for the Canadian Patient Safety Institute's Incidents Response Team. Dr. Louis Francescuti is currently an emergency physician at the Royal Alexander Hospital at the Northeast Community Health Centre in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. As a professor in the School of Public Health at the University of Alberta, he teaches graduate courses in leadership advocacy, and public health. He, he was selected as one of Alberta's top 100 physicians of the century by the Alberta Medical Association College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta, and he was also awarded the Alberta Centennial Medal from the Government of Alberta in 2005. In 2011, he was selected by Alberta Ventures as one of Alberta's 50 most influential people. And in 2012, he was awarded the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal. So I would like to welcome Dr. Robert Baird and Dr. Louis Francescuti to Tackle Tuesday. They co-authored the book, Hardwired, How Our Instincts to Be Healthy Are Making Us Sick. The book focuses on how, as a human species, we have evolved to survive, but in our modern world of survival instincts, it's created a health health paradox. The things that are meant to keep us alive are in fact killing us. And so for the first time in a thousand years, Americans are experiencing a reversal in lifespan. So there's a lot to get to. So thank you so much for being on the show. How are you both doing today? Great. Thanks for having us on. Excellent. My pleasure. Thank you for being on the show. So to kind of ease into our conversation before we get into the book, and as I mentioned, there's a lot to cover. I want to know a little bit more about your partnership. How did the both of you meet? How did you start working together? And how did that lead you to co-authoring Hardwired? Great. Um, well, I'm going to start off by uh, plugging Louie here. Because, uh, Louis is a real thought leader um, in the world of public health. Uh, he's a professor and uh, an ER physician, 
And uh, I met Louis um, through some of the amazing work that he was doing uh, through the University of Alberta. We started doing some projects together. Uh, we did a couple of talks together as well and uh, kind of built a the professional relationship doing uh, some of our work in the in the safety realm, the occupational health and safety. So we realized that we were really both asking uh, the same question about life, which is why do we do the things that we do? Uh, and for Louis as an ER physician, um, he gets kind of the sharp end of that answer to that question with a lot of injuries and accidents and, and worse. And myself as a, as a social scientist, looking at that a lot from the, the psychological realm, the social world, um, but asking the same question. And we started looking at some of the, the major uh, negative health trends, perhaps, uh, in outcomes that we're seeing in the world today, and just the increasing stress and anxiety that we're all feeling. And we, we thought that really we only can get to the bottom of this um, by looking at uh, the problem through both of our lenses together. So kind of laying one on top of the other, uh, looking at the medical world as well as the social world. Because um, as we talk about in the book, um, many of our uh, biggest health changes are, are directly attributed to the social world right now. So you really have to understand that to see the effects that's happening in the medical and the biological realm. So that's kind of the... The quick backstory, and maybe Louis has a different version of that, but or, or the same one. No, just to add, uh, every now and then in life, you know, things just come together and they were meant to be. And this was uh, meant to be. After Rob and I did a series of presentations, people um, always came up afterwards and said, Have you guys written a book and captured a lot of your thoughts? And so we looked at each other and, and said, Who's got time to write a book? But, uh, you know, Rob uh, started it off and uh, Rob's got really good writing skills. And so then we would bounce ideas and get new ideas. And and then, you know, we had that aha moment at the end of it all where we looked at each other and basically said, you know, what's going on is that humans are running on outdated software. You know, the software that's kept us alive for millions of years, uh, you know, the dopamine reward system so that if you found water, you were given a little bit of dopamine. If you found a morsel of food you were given a reward, or if you had sex, you know, you, you were given a real big reward. That's survival of the species. And so, yeah, we started playing with that idea that, um, you know, we're hardwired to try and survive. But unfortunately, you know, instead of a morsel of food, <laughs> we got truckloads of food. And every time you eat it, you get a reward. And so, I mean, it's not a coincidence that obesity rates around the world are skyrocketing. And it's not a coincidence that the World Health Organization said that by 2020, depression would be, you know, the leading cause of disability. And it's not a coincidence, you know, as Rob, um, you know, captured so eloquently that um, adolescents have got a 35 percent increased suicide rate. So there's something going on that uh, we believe it's because uh, we're running on outdated software. Now, some people have been able to figure their own patches, but these are people that have. Um, been able to fill the social determinants of health in their life. In other words, they have a job, they're well-educated, they got a good partner, they've got some dollars in the bank, they have the means to be able to figure things out. But the average Joe and Jane out there, unfortunately, is just struggling to make ends meet. And I think that COVID has taught us that the haves do okay and the have-nots really don't mm -hmm. do that well. And you can look at seniors in senior homes they're really have-nots, you know, because there are senior homes where this hasn't happened, but they're usually senior homes where you have to pay. And the level of service is very different than, you know, the minimally educated, 
you know, overworked, underpaid service aid where there's a high turnover. Um, so I think COVID has taught us that something is going on as a society that we need to wake up because otherwise we're all going to go down this path. I mm-hmm. don't want to sound pessimistic, but it's a real wake up call. Mm-hmm. You mentioned COVID. Um, you wrote this book before the pandemic, correct? That's true. Absolutely. That was fortuitous. Yeah. Right. How do you think, would you have approached the way you wrote the book any differently if you were to write it now? Uh, other than mention COVID more often in the book, but everything else that we said uh, was happening within society has been magnified through the lens okay. of COVID. That's that's basically what ended up happening. Yeah. And I think, I can't remember, Rob, don't we mention something towards the end of the book on pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. Our last chapter is uh, from p- pandemic to prosperity. That's right. uh, so we, you know, uh, that's a real uh, coincidence that we, we wrote that chapter, um, obviously, you know, very much pre-COVID. And uh, we looked at uh, at an example of the Black Plague and how our world uh, through the Italian Renaissance was able to uh, flourish. And so how, how did that transition happen from the, you know, one of the worst plagues in all of human history to uh, right away leaping into a period of, of amazing human progress? And uh, so we look at how that essentially feeds into our hardwiring, but in a positive way as well. So we kind of leave that on a, on a better note. Which is good, important, right? That message of hope. Um, so actually, this leads really nicely into chapter one. Uh, why a hospital is the most dangerous place on earth? And I kind of like how you just, you, you start with that right away. You're like, let's cut to the chase. <laughs> let's just get to what's going on. And you talk about how 25% of Canadians say that they've, they've had a loved one that's experienced an adverse event while in hospital. In the U.S., that's higher. It's one out of every four people. And I've experienced this on a somewhat personal level. A very close friend of mine, her mother went into the hospital last Christmas. And I mean, it wasn't life-threatening, but she felt like she needed some some professional intervention and help. And within a few days, she was about to die. And the hospital staff looked at my friend and said, well, she's in her 80s. She's old. It happens. And she's like, no, I refuse to believe that she's old. She was healthy when she came in. She wasn't on her, she wasn't about to die. And she pushed them to probe and to not just give up. And they discovered that she was being over-medicated. And as soon as they got her meds in flux, like back to the right level, she bounced right out of it. And within a week, she left the hospital and she's doing well now. But when I read that chapter, I was like, oh my, because I could relate to it. And as I continued to read the chapter, one of the things that really struck me, didn't surprise me, because I know that this exists in other professions as well, but this unwillingness to admit to mistakes, to errors, this fear of formal error reporting, you talk about that in the book. Um, And you say that, but it's the only way we can build a learning system. And my business is really focused on how to support learning through everyday work not just through formal training, but looking at the work environment as a fruitful environment to learn. And obviously a hospital is one of those environments. And so it speaks to me a little bit of this fear of being vulnerable, right? And you need to be vulnerable to admit to mistakes, but that's how we learn. What did we do? What didn't work? What can we do better next time? I was hoping you could talk a little bit as to why that is the case. Why is this there, 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 this fear of vulnerability, opening up to admitting to mistakes. And you talk a little bit about, it also links to lack of communication, teamwork, leadership. So can you talk a little bit as to why that is and what can the medical community do and what can we do 
to, to start shifting that mindset. Okay. Uh, maybe I'll start off um, with a bit of the background as to why. And then uh, Louis has, uh, you know, quite a few years of uh, direct experience with this. So maybe he can, uh, he can talk about, about uh, some of the things that he actually sees in the hospital every day. But uh, you're quite right. So we open with that chapter uh, for a couple of reasons. One is to certainly hi- highlight the the actual problem itself that uh, that there is just this degree of medical error happening, and the other one is really to you know convince everybody that they should be staying out of hospitals as much as possible. And and <laughs> we can talk a little bit about that as well. Um, but the problem is is as big as as we say in the book, and as big as you talked about. Really, about one in four people do experience. Uh, some sort of preventable medical error or know of a family member or friend who has experienced that. And what we'd like to do is underscore that word preventable. So this, these are not errors that are part and parcel of trying to treat somebody in the course of treatment. Um, You try this, you try that one thing doesn't work. Well, maybe let's just try this. These are, these are preventable errors that um, did not need to happen. And we learn a lot from aviation in this regard. Uh, we know that in aviation, um, when we look at some of the human factors work there as well, that about 70% of all aviation incidents uh, and accidents and mishaps and near misses are the result of a non-technical error, non-technical. All right. So this is these have to do with communication, leadership, teamwork. And, you know, let's, let's jump on that psychological safety aspect that you talked about, which I think is probably fundamental to this. It's that's the ability to really foster an environment where people can speak up. They can feel like they're part of the team. And this is not a, a threat to authority. Uh, when I've done uh, work, uh, and Louie and I've done work in this area uh, around the, say, the operating room checklist that was brought into Canada. So I was involved in that. Um, there was some pushback. There was some pushback because some of the surgeons thought that it might be a threat to their authority. They do this surgery maybe hundreds of times, this particular knee surgery. And, you know, why do I need a checklist? And why do I need someone else to tell me how to do my job? Uh, but you quickly realize that these are these are backup systems and tools to help leaders do a, make better decisions. So this is about getting all the information that a leader would need to make a more informed decision. Um, and that's what it's all about. So uh, in aviation, um, you know, generations ago when we were learning about, um, you know, how safety worked, there were times where the communication was so bad that you might have people that were aware of a problem that was developing that could be catastrophic. And they withheld that information because they were afraid of upsetting the social dynamic of the crew. Uh, this is obviously the opposite of what we want. We want people to participate, provide information. So, you know, when say when Louis is in the ER, he gets all the information that he needs that is available to him so he can make the, you know, the best directive decision at the time. So um, that's what we're talking about with psychological safety. It is a, it's very challenging. Uh, the why that's not why that is so challenging. These cultures take a long time to turn around. They are a long time turnaround in, in aviation. Uh, it's taking a long time to turn around in in healthcare as well. Uh, most of the time, I think that uh, you know the more prog- progressive, safety oriented um, uh, healthcare providers get it. Um, but I've done I've done talks at general surgery conferences uh, where uh, hands are raised and they say, "Hey, I think we're doing a great job," and I think it's um, almost unfair 
to point out uh, that you know we have this rate of of error. But the, this is the but again, this is preventable errors, and this does have to do with the social dynamic. And so it's it's real, and uh, I think it's a it's a significant problem, and that's why we open up with that uh, that chapter as well. But Louis got more direct experience in the hospital every every uh, time he goes to work, so it's interesting to hear from his perspective as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not as if anyone goes to work intentionally wanting to harm someone. I mean, um, those circumstances are extremely rare. But healthcare is a very complex environment. And uh, the culture, unfortunately, has been one of uh, superiority that uh, nobody makes mistakes. And uh, if they do make mistakes, you know, there's there's a, a hesitancy to bring them out in the open. There has been a patient safety movement that started for many years now, but it's a uh, slow to take hold in comparison to the aviation industry or the oil and gas. You know, it's safer to work, for example, in oil and gas than it is to work as a healthcare provider. There's more WCB claims for healthcare providers than there are in the oil patch. And the other thing, too, is that we unfortunately have this false sense of security because these facilities are accredited. So these are accredited facilities so that, you know, with you would assume that they're safe. Um, and that's the furthest thing from the truth. So till um, healthcare providers uh, go to work each day, trying to put themselves out of business and trying to get rid of the patients, then unfortunately, right. I think the problem is going to continue because right now, bigger is better, more is better, you know, uh, more flashy institutions are better. So, you know, disease is king as opposed to trying to prevent uh, the majority of the disease. And it's not as complicated as it sounds because three risk factors, smoking, inactivity, and poor nutrition, contribute to four major diseases, cancer, certain cancers, uh, diabetes, uh, certain respiratory and cardiovascular illness. And that accounts for 50% of the disease burden. So three risk factors account for 50%. And at any given time, no matter where you go, it's only 5% of the population that consumes 65% of healthcare resources. That number holds true no matter where you go. So, you know, if we're going to really get serious about this, then we should be looking at closing down hospitals, laying off doctors, laying off nurses, and reinvesting that money into the things that make a difference in the health of individuals, which is the social determinants of health, which we mentioned, but equally important eliminating adverse childhood events. So, you know, the moment a child under the age of 18 months experiences an adverse event, and especially if they experience three, that's going to have a consequence on their mental well-being, on chronic diseases down the road, whether they're, you know, going to be able to finish school, whether they end up as sex trade workers, whether they end up in the juvenile system. And the other thing is pregnant women should be under no stress whatsoever, because if a pregnant woman is under stress, the cortisol and the hormones, the bad hormones that develop actually can change the genes of the baby. It's called epigenesis. Mm -hmm. So why do we start with the first chapter telling people you got to stay out of hospitals? Because they're still dangerous places. Um, And uh, you want to be as healthy as you possibly can be. And the other thing you want to do, as you mentioned, is bring someone who can advocate for you. Because when you're sick, you're not going to be a very good advocate for yourself. Bring someone who's, who knows a little bit about what's going on and is not afraid to challenge a doctor or nurse to wash their hands before they touch you, is not afraid to find out how much sleep 
the person had before they come near you. And uh, you're not afraid to ask what complication rates are for surgeons, or you're not afraid to ask what the infect, you know, what's your infectious disease rate within the institution. So there's a lot of questions that people can ask in a non-threatening way. But uh, yeah, don't think because you're going into a healthcare facility that it's safe. Uh, assume the opposite. And you know, I don't make many friends in healthcare talking this way, but the reality is someone has to tell it the way it is. Right. There must be other healthcare professionals that you do know of that, like you said, you're not the most popular person, but other people who think like you and are happy that you're sharing this story, correct? Well, there's there's lots of people that are trying to, you know, get this to become, um, you know, reduce the stigma around errors and uh, mm-hmm. mishaps within healthcare. But unfortunately, it's, uh, it's still the silent majority. Yeah, it's not the norm. You. And one of the things you do talk about in that chapter is that there's a correlation between, because you did talk about prevention. You want to try to prevent getting into the hospital in the first place. So there's a correlation between education, level of education, and being healthy. And I don't want to mix up the stats, but you mentioned that women who don't have a degree, life expectancy is a lot lower than women who do. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. That's some of the research that came out um, quite recently. We, we talk a lot about that, how and you mentioned it, I think, in the introduction there, too, um, this idea of a prediction of longevity. So how long are you predicted to live? Uh, you know, if you look back the last thousand years, uh, we have seen in wealthy nations, we've seen, you know, a steady, small, incremental increase year over year, aside from, you know, wars and, and pandemics. Uh, you'll see a positive increase. You know, these are small, like maybe, you know, weeks or months uh, but in the mid-1990s, we saw, amongst many wealthy nations, a drastic drop, uh, you know, f- huge drop in lo- in predicted longevity. Uh, and then uh, most of the countries started to come creep back, but the U.S. has been struggling um, to regain its foothold with, with respect to longevity. Uh, and that is uh, much to do with what's happening in our midlife. So we have the so-called midlife mortality and that is, uh, you know, primarily due to behaviors. So this is, you know, uh, tobacco. Surprisingly, tobacco is still one of the leading causes of, of this, of death and mortality. So tobacco, um, certainly diet, uh, obesity is out of control. Um, we see uh, substance abuse, uh, prescription medications, opioids. These are the behaviors that are problematic that are creeping up uh, and really having a serious consequence in midlife uh, where we might not have seen that uh, before. And it's quite right. The statistics do say that the less educated um, and, you know, less educated generally across the board, but what was most interesting was certainly less educated uh, women, women without a college education uh, were, you know, succumbing to midlife mortalities at a, or at a greater rate. So they're also called, um, almost like a, um, you know, a a depressive uh, state as well. So these are uh, characterized by mental, mental state as well. So the the types of decisions that we're, that we're making uh, in midlife are not being good for our health. Uh, So there's a direct tie between the social world, you know, the the mental state, and then obviously that the health outcomes as well. Um, once again, Louis got some firsthand experience uh, seeing this at a at an inner city hospital as well. So he might uh, have some more mm-hmm. comments. Mm-hmm. Louis, yeah, you know what the uh, one of the biggest problems we're seeing right now is homelessness, and um, you know the impact that homelessness has not only on the individuals but on 
the healthcare system. You know, it uh, it costs about a hundred thousand dollars a year to support an individual who's homeless, and yet for a fraction of that, we could easily house these individuals and then help them with their mental health issues if they have some, substance abuse issues if they have some. Uh, chances are good they'll need help with literacy, financial literacy, health literacy. Uh, they'll need to have at least you know a couple of friends that they can rely on. Um, and then we can rebuild Maslow's hierarchy, you know, just from the bottom up nice and slowly and then reintegrate them back in society so that they can be what they want to be, which is a meaningful member of society. So we're working right now on a project. Try It's called Bridge Healing, trying to get patients that are in emergency homeless directly to shelter. And that's, you know, going to give them the opportunity to maybe sleep for a couple of days, you know, have a really good shower, you know, get a haircut, you know, just feel good about themselves and then find out are, are there undiagnosed medical problems we can help them with? Are there things that we can help them with in terms of uh, job creation? So if they're artistic, you know, can we help them do something like that? Or just to give them a sense of purpose and a key to a place that they can store their, you know, limited possessions and get them back on track. And uh, there was a good study that was done in um, uh, down south in Alberta where, you know, they were able to pretty well get rid of homelessness because the Brassard Project, because they were able to get these people when they were their most vulnerable and give them a hand up instead of a hand out. Mm-hmm. When I first, I'm originally from Montreal and I worked with a lot of at-risk youth when I, because I started my career in nonprofit world, developing programs for kids who had been mandated by the court to take anger management and did a lot around anti-bullying. And when I left Montreal and came to uh, Calgary, was the first city I moved to, I started working for the John Howard Society. Mm-hmm. And I was hired to, in partnership with uh, 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 Gary Bentham was his name, we worked together to design and implement Windsor Park House, which was um, a homeless shelter, if you will, for, for, for homeless kids, but not, they, they had their one program, it's called Radio House, which was for really stre- uh, street entrenched children. They would go into Radio House and they were non-status youth. So they didn't have any support from the government. And they would go there to, like you said, get, be able to sleep, um, you know, get access to like those lower hierarchical needs, like, like you mentioned on like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, and then when they were ready to, when they were a bit more adjusted and a little less street entrenched, there wasn't any programming available to them because they didn't have status. They didn't have that government support. So out back into the street, they went and more often than not, they came back. So they created Windsor Park House as the next level of support for those kids. And myself and Gary were the ones that came in and designed that program. And we were only, I think, one of the only few, maybe we were the first or the second ones to create a program for non-status youth. And we realized that it was so important not to just take care of those immediate needs, but then give them the life skills that they need, how to cook a meal, how to make their bed, go to school, pay rent, try to keep a job, things like that, that we're trying to teach them. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, if we could close down hospitals, we'd have more money to invest in prevention and helping kids early in their life. Like you said, if children are, and what, what we would see from these kids is that a lot of the problems that they experience stemmed from their family environment. And their parents not having the skills to help their kids. That's where we we talked about earlier about adverse childhood events. uh, And the change that actually happens genetically 
And you can see that some people just seem to not get a break. And part of the reason with that is if you go two or three generations where your DNA has been damaged because your mom's under stress and your childhood um, has not been a very pleasant one, you wonder why sometimes these folks aren't doing worse than they're doing. So Absolutely. They're survivors. They've got survivor skills. And the best thing to do is to use people that have uh, the street smarts and the life experience to work in the programs because they understand far better than I. I mean, I've not had too many nights where I've been homeless. Yeah, I, I was going to add a comment to that too. We we talk in the book too, and I think this might tie in too, is the uh, the uh, the fact that uh, trying to have a sense of control over your future and trust where your direct the direction of your life is going uh that ties directly into your your happiness and your ability to to function as well so you know we look at that you know the famous marshmallow experiment that uh where <laughs> where the uh the kids were uh, given a choice of uh, delaying their gratification to receive two you know two marshmallows later on um they when they did follow on experiments to that uh they they said they found out that it really came down to whether or not they trusted the uh, the person that was doing the test as to whether they were actually going to deliver the, on what they said they would deliver. And if they didn't trust the situation, they didn't trust the uh, the experimenter, uh, the researcher, then uh, they would just uh, take what they could, you know, bird in the hand and uh, and leave. So. Uh, that ties in a lot to what we're seeing as well is that ability to trust. And when you have this world that feels like it's shifting so fast beneath our feet uh, and you don't necessarily uh, have full confidence as to, you know, you know, is it going to pan out exactly the way I think in the future as well? That la- that uh, inability to sort of to trust wholeheartedly your future, um, it affects your happiness. Uh, it affects your ability to have that willpower to you know, perhaps plan and uh, you know, for your life accordingly. So that all ties into it as well. And if you don't have that trust, uh, then your life can spin out of control. And then you, you know, then you do go towards, you know, other um, coping strategies and coping mechanisms that aren't healthy. And, and that's where you, you have a problem. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that sticks out to me is resilience. That's this term, which I think is leading nicely to my next my next question, which is on chapter four, the truth about happiness. And Rob, you just talked about this search uh, need to be happy mm-hmm. and what contributes to somebody being happy. And I think a lot of it is rooted in our ability to be resilient, especially with everything that's going on. And like you said, one of the things that I saw in these kids in the program, the ones that were successful after they left the program had this like a lot of a lot of resiliency within them and i always was curious to understand more about what contributes to resiliency and when i read chapter 4 and you talk about the blue zones and maybe you could talk a little bit about what that is cuz i'm still learning that a lot of people don't know what the blue zones are but i mean in a nutshell you're focusing on people that live in certain parts of the world that tend to uh, their, their lifespan or life expectancy exceeds that of any other place on earth. Um, Ikeria, I'm Greek, so that's one of those mm-hmm. places. Uh, but you talk about how it's not just eating healthy. It's about the relationships that they have and their sense of purpose. I think that contributes to a person's ability to be resilient and 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 happy in the long term in their life. Um, can you talk a little bit about the blue zones and why is food not the only thing that can, you know, contribute to a longer lifespan? You know what, Rob, I'll, I'll start off just uh, quickly building up on the uh, the happiness part, and then you can, you can get into tying it all together. 
So, I mean, if you say happiness, okay, well, what's happiness? So if we look at happiness being 100%, 50% of it is genetic. You either have it or you don't, okay? So you were either born with it or you, or you don't have it. You can only get 10% happier by having stuff. Now, people have a lot of stuff that's junk, right? You go through your house and you've got tons of crap. And, you know, the, the more the branded that junk is, you're not buying that for yourself. You're buying it for others so that others think you're, you know, well-to-do important. So, you know, the Yves Saint Laurent, the Gucci, the Mont Blanc, you can just rattle off those labels and you don't buy them for yourself. You buy them so that other people see you with them, right? But you can get 40% happier by volunteering. And so volunteering is one of the ways that you can almost instantly improve your happiness in life. And you know what? Rob's going to talk a bit about loneliness, but loneliness is worse for your health than smoking. So the impact of being lonely on a daily basis is worse for your health than smoking. So you can tell that's bad. And countries that know this, like the UK, have developed ministries of loneliness to deal with the issue. United Arab Emirates has a minister of happiness. So there, there are countries that understand the importance of happiness and loneliness and how they have an impact on someone's health. But I think your listeners should um, clearly understand if they're not happy or if they want to get happier, just start volunteering and they'll see an improvement in their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Rob, I'm curious to hear your perspective, too, because you've done a lot of work on team dynamics. Yes. Yeah. So let's, if we just wanted to touch a little bit on that, uh, the blue zone idea. Uh, you mentioned the, the peninsula in Greece as well. So one of the things that uh, they looked at, of course, this is, these are some of the most in, uh, researched uh, groups in the world. Uh, so, I mean, there's even blood samples that have been taken from all of these, these groups. And the, the blue zones are various uh, zones around the world where they noticed that people were living uh, healthily for a long time. So the centenarians, so they, they were living, you know, hundred years old, they had a high proportion of, of those individuals and, you know, what, what makes them live longer. So I looked, you know, diet and exercise and everything else. Um, one of the interesting things, if you go right down to the DNA and you look at the, the uh, right at the ends of the DNA, DNA, there's a little part called a telomere. And, and that's like the little plastic piece on the end of a shoelace. It keeps it from fraying. So every time your DNA uh, splits and splices over the course of your life, it, 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 uh, it can only do this so many times and it would, you know, fray and fall apart if you didn't have these telomeres. So these telomeres get shorter and shorter and shorter as you go uh, along in your life. And they found that, that these, the telomere lengths were about 20 years difference from uh, their actual age. So the biological age of the DNA of these individuals is about 20 years younger than it should be. And so they, you know, why is that? So they, they eventually looked at the diet and they said, you know, that the diet isn't, you know, tremendously different. The exercise isn't tremendously different. Um, really it had to do with the social environment. Uh, that was one of the, one of the leading uh, contributors of the longevity. So it was the idea that they lived in a, in a community of individuals where everybody kind of looked after each other, uh, made sure everybody was, you know, not too stressed. Uh, you had that network support and that's very, very powerful. Uh, the, the other thing, I mean, I guess we all kind of inherently feel that if we, if you live in a network, a social group that you feel that, you know, they have your back and you have their back, it, it feels good. It feels good. You feel, you, you feel right away, you feel a little bit less stressed about the world around us. 
Um, but one of the yeah, other things that was really wired into us as well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, one of the interesting things is um, the societies that, and I think uh, Louis mentioned it earlier too, is, you know, having stuff to look good to others. When we get into this comparison with others, that's when our world starts to get a little bit um, less happy. Uh, we are either at the top of the ladder or we are not at the top of the ladder. We're at one of the rungs below the top of the ladder and in terms of our relative comparison with others. And if we constantly think of our world that way, then really we're constantly a little bit unhappy and a little bit unsatisfied about where we are. Uh, now, that that is also part of the human advantage, the human experience that we seek out to improve ourselves. But when we really dug into this question of what makes us uh, happy as well, that, that was a huge factor is the relative comparison with others. So in these communities, there is less of, of a hierarchical um, imbalance between the haves and the have-nots as well. There's a flatter um, community structure where everybody kind of looks after each other. And that has a, the direct uh, health implications as well. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. And I was interested about the, the research you've done on team dynamics, because I, you know, one of the things that I try to tell, I talk about in a lot of my, my uh, presentations is, you know, it can't just be about work to create a safe psychological, you know, workplace. You have to care about the people that you work with. You have to develop a relationship with them. You don't have to be best friends with them and spend your weekends with them, but there has to be some, some connection where they, they can trust you. Like you talked about the kids accepting the marshmallow, they trusted the person. And it's like that in leadership too. Do you trust the people that are leading you that you, you work with, that you live with, you know, do, do you have each other's back? And I think that contributes to a sense of happiness and well-being. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that, yeah, the idea that you certainly trust and believe in the, in the leader that, uh, of the team that you're working with is, is paramount. Um, as soon as that breaks down, of course you have problems. You, you start to withhold information. Also leaders that foster, as you say, this, the, the psychological safety, that environment. So you feel willing to speak up. If you're in a team and we've all been in teams like this, if you're in a team where you say, okay, I'm going to, you know, this, the leader told me I can speak up. All right. So I'm going to speak up and you do and you're wrong, well, now your, your stock, <laughs> so your social stock in that team has just dropped and you can feel it. And now everybody looks at you when you have something really important to say later on, they kind of look at you and say, yeah, well, you know, that individual was wrong before probably, you know, I don't know if we should be listening to this person anymore. Now, if you happen to be right, your social stock will rise in the team as well. So really good leaders, and we see this in aviation all the time as well, um, will will encourage right or wrong uh, all the members of the team to speak up. And if the team member is wrong um, and it's determined to be wrong in some in some way, um, they're rewarded. The entire team rewards them for speaking up because next time it might be something that's really important and they might be right about it. So it's the speaking up that is rewarded, not the right or wrong. So the whole blame and shame culture that we see a lot in healthcare and other, in other, certainly in other industries as well, is something that we have to work very hard against. And great leaders will be very quick to to squash a a, a shame or blame culture. Right. And this is Louis. You were saying this is what the issue is in the medical community is trying to create a culture like that. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, you know, industry, just like Rob said, if uh, the lowest person on the uh, you know, on the uh, hierarchy in industry would be a laborer. So if an 18-year-old laborer um, sees something and they were told to report it, 
In other words, let's say they're doing a big lift with a crane and he sees the uh, crane riggers coming off the pad and he panics and he shuts down the operation. And that costs a lot of money to shut down the operation. If the uh, chief executive officer goes over to him and asks him what he did and he explains to him, well, I saw that thing come off the pad by an inch and I thought the crane was going to tip. And if the chief says, good call, you know, they've got room for that to happen, but uh, it's good that you noticed and that you called it out. Then, you know, then the culture within the organization changes. One thing I just want to add to what yeah. Rob's talking about, one of the most important things, and it's worldwide, uh, I've had the opportunity to do a lot of traveling. And the moment you meet someone for the very first time, you say hello, you talk about the weather. What's the very first thing you want to find out about that person? Me personally? <laughs> no, well, most people most. will say, what do you do for a living? I was going to say, I usually ask that question. Yeah. And the reason you're asking that question is you're you're trying to find what their social status is. And then it's not good enough to say, uh, if the person says they're an airline, they're a pilot. Well, what are you a pilot of? The space shuttle? You know, a 737, a Dreamliner, or a Cessna, you know, 126? If you're a doctor, well, what kind of a doctor? A neurosurgeon or you know, um, a psychiatrist, or if you say you're a model, well, where did you model for the, you know, Vaderville Herald or, you know, New York Times or Vogue. So it's not good enough. And if you want to drive somebody crazy when you're at a party, just don't tell them what you do. And and they're going to persevere right till they find out whether or not they want to talk to you anymore. Right. I'm going to, you know what, I've actually mentally um, tried to not ask that question. Try to ask other more creative, interesting questions than just, what do you do? Because there's but, but so much more. A few minutes, you still want to know. I know. I know. I'm hardwired that way. We, well, we are. You know, we are hardwired that way. We, we, are, we are members of groups. And we, you know, historically, evolutionary did not want to be kicked out of the group. We want to be high value. So we're always constantly ranking ourselves. You know, the hardwiring is ranking ourselves with everybody else you know, in our group. And, you know, am I, am I more important, less important, more valuable, less valuable. And, and you'll see that if you have conversations with people every day, meet, as Louis said, meeting people, this be aware of the status questions. So it's not just, you know, Louis right. But it's, it's where, you know, what do you do for a living? But, you know, where have you traveled? Um, you know, uh, the, the probing questions that have to do with status, be aware of that. It's really, really fascinating to see how many questions are status versus say what you say, creativity questions um so that we talk about me formers or informers are you a me former where you're talking about yourself all the time or are you informer like let's pick something that's happening in the world and talk about it and you know and, and make and talk about that together that has nothing to do with this and, and you know leading into that is how you can create a totally artificial world around you and that's what social media and young people so you you know who posts bad stuff on Facebook? I don't use Facebook, but who posts the bad anything? Everything's good. You know, the family's good. The kids are good. You're looking good. Your hair is done. Your head's tilted to the right way. Your posture's good. Your Everything's perfect. So you take a look at this and all kids are perfect. And yet in the real world, they're not perfect. And so what ends up happening is that they become confused by the disconnect between who they're projecting to be and who they really are. And, and, you know, that's where we think that a lot of young kids are getting, I hate to say screwed up, but screwed yeah. up because this environment is allowing them to be who they're not. 
Exactly. And you, one of the things that I've noticed personally, now that I've started my own business and I use social media a lot to promote my business and my message and marketing is a big aspect of that. One of the things that I'm beginning to hear a lot from marketers is share your disaster stories, share the times that you were really challenged, share the times where you didn't succeed. And and they're noticing a correlation with how many, and it, it can't just be likes. You want to help people. You want to improve their lives. But it seems as though that there's a trend, at least in marketing, uh, to encourage people to share their true selves. And so I wonder how long that will take for people to embrace it, because that isn't the norm. You don't see a lot of people embracing their errors, their mistakes, which goes back full circle to our first conversation. You know, uh, you don't hear that. You don't hear about the person that almost lost their business the first year. You hear about all the successes. And and I'm hoping to see a bit of a trend away from that over time. I'm beginning to see little little bits of it now, but hopefully it'll it'll start and it'll progress a little bit more than it is or where what it's at now. I, I'm cognizant of time, but I have there's this I have two more questions if that's okay. Yeah. Okay. There's one question I really want to ask because as a woman reading your book and as a researcher myself, you know, there's a lot of, there's a wealth of information in your book. It's packed with a lot of information that comes from previous research studies and real stories. But a lot of those, a lot of the, 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 the data that came from those research studies and the stories are grounded in a male perspective. And that was just the case, right? When research started to occur, the turn of the century, men were the subjects of research studies. And you talk about one research study then in the 1930s, it was a longitudinal study where they followed 30 men, I think. And over time, they did follow their 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 uh, offspring. Part of me wonders how many of those included women. But even the stories, leadership that you share, Eisenhower, even Hitler, some of the stuff that you talk about Hitler was fascinating, I didn't know. But once again, grounded in that male perspective. and 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 that's just the nature of the way things have been. Things are beginning to shift. Women's perspectives are beginning to be integrated and appreciated more. And a woman's way of leading, too. We hear a lot about Jakinda Arden and how she's leading her country through this crisis than, than men are. So part of me was wondering, if you were to write Hardwired 2.0 and you were able to draw from research studies, maybe even your own, that included more women or had more stories from women leaders, how might the themes in your book be different? Okay, well, I'll start off with that one. Um, it's true. We you do pick from the available research. I think that's the starting point. So, yeah, certainly a lot of the research, as you rightly say, uh, historically has been uh, male dominated, male focused. Um, the Harvard study that you talk about was is still the longest running uh, study on uh, on longevity um, and uh, you know and lifespan that uh, started in Harvard, and it was all men. Uh, there was uh, so-called advantaged men and so-called disadvantaged men, uh, and the comparison of the of the life courses throughout all from college years, university years, right up, uh, you know, to the end of life. Uh, yes, all men. I, you know, I think that uh, yes, yeah, so you use the available uh, resources that you have in terms of the research. Um, but one takeaway, and I think this is kind of interesting, um, which if we were to write it from a uh, the female perspective, is that. Uh, when we looked at the ultimate conclusions of the book and we talk about happiness and uh, we talk about um, social cohesion, um, the sort of the antidote to loneliness, uh, for example, um, a lot of the cultures that rise to the top um, in that are 
of the flatter hierarchical sharing uh, communicative um, cultures. Um, if you look at cultural studies, uh, these are often characterized right or wrong as a as a more feminine based culture um, because of the of just the way that the power dynamic is shared across the the uh, stratification of the of the culture. And so I think that is one of the major takeaways of the book is that, hey, this might be the answer. This might be <laughs> this might be a, a huge part of of solving this problem of of how to deal with our hardwiring. We're not going to we can't change our hardwiring, at least right away. These things are you know slow evolutionary processes. So our book is about awareness and how to manage it, how to deal with it. And that may be something that's right at our fingertips that we can start looking at some of these these societies that do this. Louis got some great examples I think from the healthcare world in Denmark and elsewhere where they do a great job of you know that that level of inclusion. So that may be something that we would we would push a bit more spend a bit more of their books real estate uh, developing that idea. Um, and uh, and it would be very interesting to to actually compare that with what would be considered a male dominated history with what might be considered <laughs> more of a feminine future. So uh, that's that's one direction I think that would be really really interesting to develop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd like to explore further whether males and females are hardwired differently. So in other words, um, you know, at, at the risk of saying something that's going to get me in trouble. Um, do we serve different roles? And it's only within the last hundred years that we've tried to evolve into sort of a, a unisex role where everyone can do everything. But if we've been doing things as males and females for hundreds of millions of years, um, I think it would be naive to think that within 50 years, we could both assume what's hardwired for me as a male or you as a female or someone that's, you know, in between male and female. I mean, there's so many different orientations nowadays. You can't really just talk about females and you can't right. really just talk about males. Right. And so I'll, I'll tell you, uh, you know, the more we talk about the book and the more we're uh, challenged to think differently, um, I think version two would take it a step even farther and talk about how organizations have devolved to to be hardwired themselves. It's, you know, the concept of corporate immunity. So if you're talking about leadership within organizations, well, you know, Xerox, DuPont, Dow, you know, Facebook, uh, you know, LinkedIn, all these have different cultures as well. And how do those cultures interplay with our hardwiring? So it, it becomes a lot more complicated than it actually is. And I think that that's what we're trying to get across here is that, hey, folks, Things are happening to you and you're doing things, not because you're wanting to, but because it's in your DNA and you've been doing it for such a long time that you've survived. Now, maybe our survival skills have to be fine-tuned for an entirely different environment. So instead of a saber-toothed tiger, you know, coming and biting my ass, it might be a co-worker or it might be, you know, someone within the family or someone within the neighborhood. So the, the dangers that we face today, I think, are more subtle and they're not as overt as, you know, T-Rex or, you know, a tiger or a grizzly bear. Although I, where you live, grizzly bears can still. That, that's true. <laughs> I, I, that's very true. <laughs> 
I, I very much agree with what you said. And I think that's why eventually I made the shift away from working in the nonprofit world with at-risk youth going into organizations. Because I wanted to understand, just like a family environment, if you want to help the individual within the family, you have to look at the whole family environment. But organizations are also very interesting and complex. And you can try to work with one individual within a company to help them with their performance. But if you don't look at the surrounding organization that they work and function within and understand what the enablers or the disablers are to the way we learn, um, it's, it's, it's almost a futile attempt. Like we talked about going back to that conversation about the medical community, you have to shift the culture a little bit to embrace the sense of vulnerability and admitting to mistakes and creating that learning culture. So I think that's why I made the, the shift myself to examining organizations. Okay, well, here's our last question. And it needs, leads nicely into that because one of the things that I've picked up from this book and what you're trying to do, and correct me if I'm wrong, but is create a deeper sense of awareness of self just around ed basic education, around things that a lot of people don't know uh, that are very surprising to read. And and I think that goes along, all starts with self-awareness and education. If you can understand what you're doing that's well and not working, you can start to improve. Um, and so you, like I said, you, you give such a wealth of information around things that a lot of people don't know and we need to know if we're going to start shifting our lives. But I have this thing called keep it, start it and drop it. So when it comes to our survival-seeking hardwired brains and bodies, what's one thing we should keep, start, and what's one thing we should we should stop, drop doing? All right, I'll uh, I'll start out. Uh, I don't know if I should answer all three or just uh, <laughs> answer one, but uh, keep it. All right. So I think that uh, part of what we found in our research was that uh, that our competitive nature, that 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 the part that makes us uh, human in terms of being able to plan and rationalize um, and tr and try to change our environment for the better um, is innately human aspect as well. This is, you know, this is the part of the brain, the, that prefrontal cortex kind of right behind your forehead that doesn't really fully develop until you're, you're in your mid twenties. But that is a really, you know, critical, if not one of the most critical parts of being human. So as much as we talk in the book about, you know, having flatter social hierarchies, perhaps having um, more uh, cooperation um, not comparing ourselves to others as much on social media, uh, all these kinds of things. As Louis says, not having all the you know the toys to show off to other people, having a more meaningful and happier life. We should keep our competitive nature that we have as human beings, and that ability to uh, to want a better future, that ability to want to change our environment. Um, you know, dogs and cats don't necessarily want to change their environment all the time. They just you know kind of live. Uh, day to day. Um, they're just very reactive in a sense. Uh, but, you know, our ability to plan and for the future, I think that's something that we want to certainly keep uh, as well. That's, that's one of the, the parts of the book that um, we don't want to be confused uh, with uh, pushing that away that we do need to keep that. I think the, uh, the one for me is nutrition, um, your eating habits, you, you want to lose the three meals a day. Yeah. Uh, you know, all you need to know about eating is this. Uh, eat more often, but eat less. Eat food that rots. Don't eat food that's processed. I mean, if, if something's processed, then we'll stay on a shelf for Ever. months. It's not food, right? As my, my son said, if a fly don't poop on it, don't eat it, right? It's got to be fresh. And the other thing is chew your food 
30 times. So if you chew your food 30 times, it reduces your caloric intake by 20%. A simple act of doing that. And uh, the brighter the food, the better. The spicier the food, the better. Obviously, the less fat, the better. But a little fat every now and then doesn't hurt. And uh, if you drink, the only thing you need to drink is water. You know, anything other than that is processed and uh, is usually bad for you. So, you know, just drink water. And only fools buy water. I mean, water comes out of the tap. It's the same water that you pay. I mean, that was a stroke of genius when Coke came up with the idea of selling a bottle of water for the same price as, you know, Coke. And it's just tap water, basically. So you don't you don't need to pay for water. Just fill it from a tap and it's Mm -hmm. safe. I don't know if I can let go of my red wine, though. Well, yeah, but I mean, there, there's there's a whole story behind that as well. Well, yeah. you're Greek, you're you're Greek and Italian here. That I'm That's talking right. to. <laughs> That's right. Um, what was the next one? Start it. Oh was yeah, it yeah. So we yeah start, okay. and the last one's drop. Okay, start it. Um, well, we well, talked a lot. Starting in the, is volunteering. Just start volunteering. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a good one. That's a, that's a good one. Um, start it would be uh, to uh, I think for me it would be start to have more meaningful social connections. So it's so easy for us now to to connect, um, you know, through our, our phones and devices by typing on them uh, to connect with people. But that's not real connection. And the, and the book talks a lot about that. that so uh, maybe that's a reinventing. We used to do that. So maybe it's a we need to restart it, I suppose, uh, would be that real social connection as well. So, and, you know, and, and uh, it's tough in COVID it is, yeah. you know, but. But certainly, you know, with our, our, our family circle, our, our pods that we that we live with, um, you know, having more meaningful social connection, you know, sitting down for dinner together, um, you know, staying off your device for a little bit uh, to talk to each other, um, maybe going for walks outside, having that uh, that nature bath with your with, you know, and walking with family or friends outside as well. But that real social connection. And then, and then another keeper. Yeah, another keeper is to. Uh to really exploit the power of sleep. Most people view sleep as a waste of time, but sleep is where your body heals itself. And sleep is where you can make crucial decisions. And sleep is where, um, you know, we know women that work as nurses on night shifts are more likely to develop breast cancer because they don't have the normal circadian rhythm to allow the body to mop up those cancerous cells. So people need to you know, at least appreciate that there's a reason we sleep. I think it's like a third of our lives. And it's because it's so crucial to just about every system within our body. So make absolutely sure that when you sleep, you sleep and you don't bring your stupid phones into the room and you don't have a TV in your room and you don't try and fall asleep with blue light, which actually wakes you up. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that you mentioned that. It was one of the questions I wanted to get to, but we're running out of time. So I skipped it. And probably one of the most important chapters for me in the book was sleep. So anybody who buys your book, I'd say, don't skip the chapter on sleep, like read, maybe even start with that because it's hard to, you know, be of healthy mind and body if you're not sleeping. And I've been realizing that over the last year that I'm forgetting things like important things like my husband's birthday, I forgot. And I am and after reading your chapter on sleep, I realized, well, I haven't been sleeping well for the last year. So I think, and now I'm sleeping better. I'm having a deeper sleep because I, when I go to bed, I'm like, you worked all day. Your job right now is to sleep. That's your job. And that's what I tell myself to get myself to go to bed. I'm sleeping better. So hopefully next year I'll remember his birthday. <laughs> oh, and the last thing is, 
<laughs> the last thing is drop. And you talk a lot about what we need to drop doing. We talked about that all through the interview today, our discussion. But one thing that really stands out for you that we you want to leave us with in terms of what we should drop doing. Well, I think it again it, it ties into this idea of for, for me anyway of of this the social comparison. We just have to. We talked a lot about it, you know that the, the status questions, and Louis mentioned it as well. You know, what do you do for a living? But uh, you know, particularly with social media, social media is is like taking our evolutionary um, uh, need for status and putting it on steroids. It really is. So this is something that we need to really pay attention to. We need to uh, use it, uh, you know, carefully um, with good judgment. Um, I like technology just as much as the next person. I'm surrounded by computers and phones and everything else. I'm not. That's part of my life. But I'm increasingly cognizant, particularly from, you know, from writing this book with Louis, particularly cognizant of, of that and the, and how that actually plays right directly into my hardwiring and, and, and how it affects me. So that's something we need to be, uh, you know, do we dr- drop it? I think we just need to be more careful of how we use it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we can't wait till it comes out as a movie. Sorry, you could turn it into a movie. No, I said, we can't wait till it comes out as a movie. Yeah, absolutely. I think they're going to use Leonardo DiCaprio for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Rob, you, you already look like an actor, but I don't know what his name is. He was—he plays a doctor. Um, oh, really? Yeah. I, I, I play a doctor on TV and Louis the real uh, MD. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, well, that, that brings us to the end of our interview. Was there any other things that you wanted to share? Something like a last message that may be something we didn't get to. Louis, go ahead. Yeah, no, I just want to say thank you very much for uh, having us on and enjoying the book so much because we uh, we really want to make sure people can start engaging in a conversation. And what we'd like to come out of this is uh, people read it and then say, hey, this is what they said. I, don't, I agree or I disagree or wow. And then, like you said, tell your husband to read the book so that you can have a conversation. And that's what we're hoping will come out of it, you know, seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time putting the thoughts together. And uh, I, I think it, it's, it's just a whole bunch of stories, right? It's uh, we're storytellers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we, um, yeah, just to add to that, um, yeah. When we put it together, we also, you know, ask, you know, what, what are the areas of, of our lives that, that really impact us the most that we want to tell the, tell those stories about. So every chapter is different, um, but they all tie together, but uh, the book is, is built and designed essentially to, to really talk about, things that matter to us in our everyday lives that absolutely matter to us. They're not abstract concepts. These are things that we live through. These are mysteries that we're trying to solve. And so we really feel that this is the, this is kind of the story of our times really mm-hmm. is, is getting to the bottom the, of this. Yeah. And the beauty is it doesn't cost anything. You don't have to join a membership. You don't have to do anything. It's, it's basically for free. All the things we've talked about are within the control of just about anyone and they're free. Absolutely. And your book is available now on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Is it on uh, Indigo too? Can you access it through there? Yeah, it is. It's actually uh, yeah, pretty much every major bookseller uh, yeah. worldwide now is uh, is carrying the book. So okay. uh, yeah, go to your uh, go to your local uh, or your your favorite uh, online bookseller, and it should be there. Wonderful. Thank you so much. This has been the longest interview I've ever conducted, but one of the best. That's great. Thanks for having us on. I really appreciate it. Well, everyone, that is our show. Thank you so much for listening to this week's Tackle Tuesday. My name is Dr. Joanna Pogonis, and I look forward 
to tackling the next issue with you.